1: Good evening and welcome to tonight's episode of The Barry Trump Show. I am so happy to have back Mehdi Hassan, host of The Mehdi Hassan Show on both MSNBC and Peacock. But more importantly, for our purposes, Medi. the author of brand new Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading and Public Speaking. I'm so uh, happy to have you here. Uh, welcome back.
2: Thank you for having me. And it's uh, nice to be the other way around. Normally, I'm interviewing you about your wonderfully successful books.
1: Oh, thank you so much. But uh, based on, I guess it was today's New York Times review of your book, yours is also going to be off to a great start. Uh, So congratulations for that. Thank you. Yes. Um, But honestly, um, I... So enjoyed reading it for a couple of reasons. One, because it's completely different from the kinds of books you and I probably have to read all of the time. Uh, And despite the fact that it's sort of ancillary to a lot of what's going on right now, it's also quite relevant to a lot of what's going on in terms of how information gets out there how people perceive information so the first question i want to ask because i really do want to go deep on the book uh because it's it's fascinating and i think anybody should read it even if they're not particularly interested in debating or public speaking but everybody should be interested in persuading and being intelligent listeners of information um so what how did it come about? I mean, I know obviously you were, you were quite famous for being somebody who likes to argue and more importantly, yeah, win exactly. arguments. Um, but what gave you the idea for this book and, and, and why now?
2: I do love a good argument as my wife and kids will testify. Uh, it's not always useful at home, but it's certainly useful outside of the home. <laughs> I've made a career out of it. Uh, I've been doing it since I was a kid, as I talk about in the book, since I was uh, at Oxford university and I got to debate at the Oxford union. And uh mm-hmm. The book came out of the pandemic, actually, because during the pandemic, at the start of the pandemic, we were all locked down at home. Uh, I thought about uh, what can I do with my time, uh, what skills do I have, what can I share, how can I do something to, you know, uh, help people in some shape or form. And people have been saying to me for a while, you know, you give these speeches, you have these debates, you do these interviews. Can what you do be taught? Could you show me how to do it so I can be better at a job interview? Can you show me how to my kid how to do it so they can win a high school debate? Friends and family. And I thought, well, why not do some kind of video series? Why not do a kind of masterclass uh, where I kind of lay out some of the some of the some of the advice and ideas and tips and techniques? And I started working on that, and then I got hired by NBC to do the, the Meredith awesome Show, and it kind of fell by the wayside. And I was doing my TV show every night. And then when it came time to think about doing a book, and I've been thinking about doing a book for a long time, I mentioned to my publishers, my agent, sorry, before I even had a publisher. Well, you know, I had this idea for a kind of video series of just me explaining how to win argument. We love it. This is great. This is what people need from across the board. And I do genuinely, I did write the book for multiple reasons. Number one, because I genuinely believe that our democracy, Mary, that you and I have discussed many a time that is under threat right now. Our democracy, our media, which you and I have criticized, even while working within the media in different shapes and forms, Neither our media culture nor our political culture can survive unless people can have good faith, genuine, substantive disagreements, debates, arguments. Uh, I feel very strongly about that. On my show, I'm a keen believer in not just having soggy consensus, trying to have disagreements, trying to host debates. Uh, number two, I enjoy doing this stuff. As, you, as I mentioned a moment ago, I genuinely think arguing can be fun. Debating can be enjoyable, You know, going down rabbit holes, trying to find the truth, kind of scoring points uh, sometimes. Um, And the third reason is because to go back to what you said, the reason I wrote this book is because I genuinely, genuinely believe it's for everyone. It is not just for the debaters. It's not just for the politicians. It's not just for the lawyers amongst us. Everyone in the world at some point or another wants to win an argument. Everyone, every man, woman, and child at some point wants to or has to win some kind of argument, disagreement, debate. And I believe that everyone can. A lot of people think, well, we can't do this. Maybe you're born that way. You were born with a big mouth. You were born with the kind of, uh, you know, this desire to one-up everyone. And maybe that's true in some cases. Maybe nature is part of it, but nurture is a lot of it. Teaching, this stuff can be taught. I believe that. I think history teaches us that. And in the book, I lay out not just lessons of how it can be taught, but examples of people who began life. You know, people like Winston Churchill, people like the great Greek rhetorician Demosthenes, They were not great speakers, and yet we remember them today. History remembers them as some of the great orators of human history.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the things I loved about the book is your historical grounding in the art of rhetoric, starting, of course, with Aristotle's rhetoric and going down through Cicero, who sounds like a fascinating chap. Basically
2: (laughs) badass, as I say in the book. He's Obama, (laughs) Lincoln, uh, JFK all rolled into one, the Roman statesman, and also enjoyed kind of not just beating his enemies, but beating them up, rhetorically speaking.
1: Well, that was one, I, I find Cicero to be one of the more fascinating uh, characters in actual historical characters in the book, because he is so much more than the portrait typically drawn of him. And he does seem to be uh, a compendium of a lot of the orders we think of today. Um, and and even using some of the tactics yeah. used by people we don't consider orders, but, like Donald, are quite effective communicators, yeah. unfortunately. So that was an education.
2: I mean, we'll come. To, I'm sure we'll come to Donald Trump in a moment, but on Cicero, yes. I would say, uh, there's multiple different chapters where I invoke his examples, both from when we talk about our lack of confidence. Well, people say to me, well, I can't get up and do that. You, you broadcast to hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of people on TV. I can't do that. And I say to people, well, Cicero is someone who is considered one of the great orators of all time. And there's a quote from him in the book where he says, I'm always nervous before I stand up to speak. There's the famous quote uh, from Mark Twain in the book, that people are of two types. They're either nervous or public speakers are of two types. They're either nervous or they're liars, right? Um, this is the thing. Very few of us can just kind of, okay, I'm at a point now where I can come on this show and I'm not nervous. I'm enjoying this conversation. But there've been times where I'm in front of a big crowd or I'm doing something, I'm outside of my comfort zone. I'm on a, a, a TV show I've never been on before. And you know, I remember when I went on Late Night with Seth Myers. oh my heart was pounding. I've never done a late night comedy show, walking on set to a live audience on a late night comedy show in America. So all of those things, I give the examples of people who've overcome it. And Cicero is one. I would say to people uh, watching and listening, don't end up like Cicero, though. His tongue was so vicious. He was so uh, eloquent and devastatingly eloquent that one of his opponents, who he mocked, Mark Anthony's wife, uh, had him killed. And the story is that she had his tongue removed so she could stab it with her hairpin. So outraged yes. was she by what he had said about her and her husband.
1: That was such a great historical detail. Uh, and uh, don't try that at home, anybody. Don't try that at home. No. Uh, but you you laid it out so uh, brilliantly, I thought. And I did, I learned a lot. I mean, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not, I, I've never been a student necessarily of the art of rhetoric. Uh, but you know, I appreciate brilliant oratory and um, I didn't realize because like most people, I I do think that part of it is you're just born with this yeah. talent and yes, some of its skill. But you you lay it out in such an organized way that I didn't realize that so many orders use the same techniques, whether consciously or not, I know, but it seems like it must be because it, you concretize it in a way that I didn't think was possible. So can you talk a little bit about how you gleaned from your own experiences and, and from, um, history, the, and distilled, uh, for us the ways in which to become. Uh, somebody who, you know, maybe you're not going to be uh, Cicero, and like you said, there are disadvantages <laughs> there, but somebody who can really get yeah. the point across in a compelling, uh, compelling, and ultimately victorious way.
2: So, it is a combination of the book of my own personal experiences, both as a debater. I'm someone who actually goes and does formal debates. I enjoy right. doing them. I talk about it in the book. I'm someone who did that as a student. But also as an interviewer, I'm known for doing kind of combative, uh, challenging interviews, both in the UK and here in the US since I moved here eight years ago. And so it's my experiences. It's my observations. A lot of the examples I give in the book are things that I've seen and enjoyed. Uh, For example, I mentioned Christopher Hitchens' famous exchange with Charlton Heston in Gulf War One. I remember watching that, uh, you know, as a teenager. Not at the time; I was, I think, I was about eleven when it happened, but. You know, shortly after years afterwards, I remember being exposed to that whenever YouTube started out. Um, I, I talk about US presidential debates that I'm a great fan of. I, you know, not just because of my job, but something I've always enjoyed watching. And I give examples from presidential debates. But then, as you say, there's also, I'm a student of history and I've enjoyed reading about the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans and uh, going back uh, to JFK and MLK and all these folks. So that's all in the book. In terms of the structure, so the way I lay out in the book is that you need to understand the principles, the fundamentals. You need to understand the role of um, emotion, pathos what aristotle i have a whole chapter on it's about feelings not just facts sometimes we want to win an argument and democrats are guilty of this often liberals very much so we can we can we can win a rational argument with the other person just by having enough statistics and enough reports and enough quotes and enough facts and figures that's not how the human brain works we all know from everyday life that's not how you actually persuade people or convince people or win um so there's a chapter on the importance of uh, the emotional appeal like connecting with people with the, in their hearts, not just their heads. Uh, there's a chapter in actually on the importance of evidence. That doesn't mean you throw ethos, sorry, logos away. It doesn't mean you throw rational argument away. That's important as well. And I'm someone who's known for, in my interviews, I always have a, a boatload of facts and figures. Yeah. I love to have quotes from my guests to say, but hold on, you said the opposite of that in 2012, November, in a random interview that we found. And I'm now quoting to you from. So I talk about the importance of facts, the importance of feelings, the importance of audience. The first chapter of the book is about your audience, knowing your audience. There's nothing more important than knowing your audience, understanding what the audience wants to hear, how you're going to connect with them, how you're going to grab their attention in our time poor, attention deficit environment. So the first third of the book, it's about these fundamentals. The importance of listening. There's a whole chapter on listening, which, as my wife laughed and said, "You're going to write a chapter on listening. You're a horrible listener."
1: <laughs> Not your and forte, right. I, uh, I, I hear.
2: <laughs> but I mean, a lot. I'm sure a lot of husbands hear that. But I would say that it's really important. Uh, to be a good listener as well in an argument if you're trying to connect with someone, if you're trying to persuade someone or an audience. So I go through the fundamentals, what I think are the fundamentals, and I even defend ad hominem arguments as well. And yeah, then I, I talk about mentioned the about that,
1: that. I want to get back to that later. But yeah, that, we'll we that we come back that to that, but very quickly. It's the the, the
2: the main principles, the main fundamentals, then I talk about the fun tricks, techniques, the stuff, as you say, even a natural vulnerability, you've got to pick these things up. They're little things that will get you through. The rule of three, dividing everything into yeah. three. Um, the art of the zinger, having that one line that mic drop at the right moment to really kind of uh, put your opponent on the defensive. Judo moves, what I call rhetorical judo moves, being able to concede, be flexible, reframe an argument. Um, uh, and of course, the gish gallop, which uh, I talk a great deal about your uncle yeah. and the ability to just... How you stand up to someone when they try and overwhelm you with bullshit, which is a very common feature, sadly, of our media and political environment today. And yeah. then the last third of the book, which I would probably say is the most important part. You know, it's, people might say, you know, WBD, worthy but dull. No, it's really important. I try and make it not dull, which is the importance of preparation, the importance right. of building up your confidence, the importance of staying calm, the importance of doing your homework and brainstorming and role-playing. People try and wing it. The problem, I meet so many people who think, well, you know, I, I, meet, I meet friends of mine, for example, who work for an NGO or a charity. They get invited on TV one day because there are issues in the news. And they go on and they, they're absolutely not good because they haven't prepared. Going on TV, standing up on a stage, You can't just wing it. And so many people think it really annoys me, actually, because I see people in all walks of life put in so much effort. If you're a doctor, if you're an accountant, if you're an engineer, if you're a lawyer, why do we think that going on TV or why do we think that uh, having a debate or giving a presentation in front of a group of people doesn't require the same amount of preparation, if not more? So I lay out my tips for how best to prepare, how best to practice, how best to deliver, um, how best to research. That's all in the book as well.
1: And actually, as to the preparation, I, I found that um, really helpful because everything, you, you know, we look at great orders or we look at um, performances in, in, in uh, presidential or vice presidential debates and we think, oh, wow, they were great off the cuff. Yeah. No, every aspect of a good speech or debate or presentation that you describe Requires preparation. Yes, uh, you know, and I'm saying you use great examples like Lloyd Benson's. Yes. Uh, You're no Jack that's, Kennedy. That's one of my favorites because I
2: didn't know about that. I, ch- I didn't know about that till I read, till I re- till I wrote this book. That was one of the ones I came across, and I was like, wow, this has got to go in the book. Uh, th- I know people at home will remember Lloyd Benson's famous takedown uh, of Dan Quayle in the 1988 vice presidential debate where he says, because Quayle had kept saying, I'm like JFK, don't question my experience. I've got as much experience as John F. Kennedy had when he ran for Congress. And Benson says, I, you know, the famous line that I knew uh, John F. Kennedy, you all no John F. Kennedy, you are no Jack Kennedy. That line was from a debate prep that he was doing with his team one of his assistants or one of his members of his team, a former congressman, had spotted that Quayle kept saying, I'm like JFK, I'm like JFK. And then when they role-played the debate, many politicians role-play the debates beforehand, they do mock debates, this guy on his team, Dennis Ecker, the former congressman, started saying, well, I'm like JFK. Benson gets angry. This is in the mock debate. And his team go, that's it, do that. Get outraged when he does it. So when Benson unleashes that zinger on stage, which kind of to this day, people still remember Quayle being humiliated by it. That didn't just come out of nowhere. He
1: didn't just pull it out of his backside live on air. He had prepared. That's right. And, and they say this in sports, the, the better you are, the luckier you are. You know, so it's... You get that way. moment. You get that's that right. moment that you've prepared for. Yeah, that's the That's lot. right. And, and you know that you're in the hands of an expert when it feels totally spontaneous and off the cuff. And one of my favorite uh, tools was judo. <laughs> so can you explain a little bit about that? Because it is, especially, I think now, and I want to get into more detail about this in a little bit, but we seem to be living in a time where... Uh, the rules don't apply in the way they used to, uh, you, you talk about the importance of building logical evidence-based argument, which is universal, but a lot of people are getting away <laughs> with yeah. not, um, not applying those rules. So I think having, having tools like judo and, and, uh, zingers, etc are really good ways. Of putting somebody who refuses to follow the rules in his or her yeah. place. So, can you talk a little bit about that more? Uh, so, more these are,
2: th- there's two chapters relevant to that in the book, which are in that middle section of the book on the on the tips and the tricks of the trade. Um, and one is, as I say, I talk about rhetorical judo moves, which which plenty of public speakers have, have invoked before. I'm not the first to make the comparison to judo, but the comparison to judo is this. that judo is a martial art in which you use the energy of your opponent against them. You try and knock them off balance. You're not trying to kick or punch them. You're trying to use their own energy to throw them to the floor, to knock them for the floor, to trip them to the floor. And in debating, in public speaking, in arguing, I'm saying, and others are saying, that try and use that same strategy to use your opponent's energy against them to catch them off guard and win that argument in that way, to be more flexible, to yield. Judo comes from Japanese words relating to yielding and being flexible. And sometimes in an argument, you think when your opponent has a great point, you just have to deny it. You just have to double down. You just have to not budge from your position. And what I say in the book is, no, actually, sometimes you should concede. You say, yeah. That's a good point. Fair enough. You got me on that one. But did you think about this other point? And the concession allows you to both uh, knock your opponent off balance. They're not expecting you to concede that. And then it allows you to come back with a stronger point. And uh, something that Cicero and others did very well uh, back in the day. So I talk about different judo moves you can deploy uh, when your back's against the wall. One is, for example, concession. Conceding a point makes you look reasonable to an audience. The audience says, ah, oh, this person's not an inflexible ideologue. He's willing to accept that certain things are not on his side. It makes you look reasonable and appealing to a neutral audience. Uh, another example of a judo move is reframing the argument, something I do a lot. Because often, you know, it's, it's, it's often somebody will come to you and say, but, aha, have you thought about this? What about this question? And you say, well, I don't even accept the terms of the question. I don't accept the example that you're offering. And you reframe the entire thing, and I give an example. Uh, in the book, where uh, I had to do a debate about Saudi Arabia. And the motion of the debate was um, the West should cut ties with Saudi Arabia. You're never going to win that debate in the UK because nobody wants to come, you know, people's jobs depend on it. We have sales, blah, blah, blah. We have diplomacy. So I very clearly, at the start of the debate, reframed the debate around the idea of this is what we mean. When we say cut ties, etc. We mean don't sell them weapons, don't give them a red carpet, don't turn a blind eye when they're killing journalists and embassies. You have to be able to reframe debates so that they're on your, so you're arguing on your terms and on your terrain, not on your opponent's turf or terrain. So that's, those are some of the examples of judo moves. And then I come up with a chapter called uh, Beware the Gish Galloper, which is what you were hinting at a moment <laughs> ago, which is we live in this climate where people don't follow rules or regulations of argument they just kind of steamroll over kind of any accepted conventions of having an agreement or disagreement or having a tv interview and that happens a lot and that happens a lot mainly because of donald j trump who came along and whether knowingly or unknowingly uh you know adopted this style which is called the gish gallop and that comes from an evolutionist uh, sorry an anti-evolutionist a creationist mm-hmm. called dwayne uh, gish who was a very prominent uh, creationist Christian who would debate against scientists on evolution back in the day, and he would just steamroll them with cherry-pick statistics, with out-of-context quotes, with nonsensical arguments that had already been rebutted in a previous debate. But he would throw so much crap at you that you couldn't rebut all the arguments, and the audience would say, well, he must be right. He said so many things, and you didn't rebut all of them. And it's kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's argument by verbosity. You're just kind of overwhelming people with bullshit. And you remember Steve Bannon had this famous line uh, in an interview where he said, our opponent, is not the, our opponent is not the Democrats. Our opponents are the media. And the way you deal with the media is to flood the zone with shit. That was Steve Bannon's famous quote, which is what the Trumpists have done. You can't keep track of all the scandals because there's too many of them. You can't keep track of all the outrageous statements from Marjorie Taylor Greene because there's a new one every day. So we are overwhelmed uh, in bullshit. We're so busy trying to clean off the last lot. We can't deal with the next lot. And that's what Trump did so effectively. And what I say in the book is... You need to be aware of that because more and more people are doing it. It's a very effective, if cynical strategy, Mm -hmm. but there is a way to stop it. And I outline in the book how you need to pick your battle when you're going up against Gish Galloper, how you need to call out the Gish Galloper and point out to an audience that's what's going on, and how you need to not budge. Too many people in my industry, in the media industry, we move on too quickly we don't do a follow-up question. We get distracted by a shiny object. And when I say that, I mean, a a story in the news. I need to get a quote on this. I need to get a quote on that. Too many interviews, when they're doing an interview with a Gish Galloper, they allow the person to get away with their nonsense because they're just moving on to one topic after another. And I always say, less is more for me. I would rather talk to someone about one or two topics and get in depth and try and really nail them down than just do a laundry list and let's talk about 10 stories in the news. I must ask you about every topic under the sun, because that allows the Gish Galloper to get away with not being held to account for all the bullshit that they've been peddling in the previous minutes.
1: Yeah. That's actually one of the things I love about your show. It's you typically have people on for 20 minute segments and you talk about a couple of things and it's one, I think one of the deeper dives that that uh, that's out there and it's so valuable and One of the things that makes it so effective, besides the fact that it's very uh, educational for the people watching and entertaining, of course, is that it it kind of lulls your subjects (laughs) into a sense of uh, comfort and it then gives you the opportunity to um, come back at them as necessary and either rebut, rebut false statements or show that they're not their their story they're telling now is different from the story they've told in the past. And yeah. you're so effective and you're not you're never um rude. You're never uh you know aggressively confrontational. So but well I'm British,
2: <laughs> so some people just think I'm well, rude just from my tone.
1: <laughs> well no, but you, you also sound very polite almost all of the time, um even if you don't want to be. Uh, but how do with you- the greatest respect. Yeah, of course. <laughs> How do you get people like Michael Flynn and John Bolton and yeah. Eric Prince of all people yes. to come on the unless they don't it's, do any research, unlike you? Well, that, the- it's,
2: let's, let me come back to that. It's a sixty four thousand dollars question I get asked, and I often ask myself, and I say to people, "Don't jinx it. Stop, stop saying that because they, they, I, I want them to keep coming. I need to." They're not watching and do this don't show. worry. Um, it is it, it is amazing that people like John Bolton came on the show and, and, I, and I grilled John Bolton. Well, I, John, it's funny you should mention the 20 minutes. We had agreed uh, a, a 15 or 20 minute oh, I, time we'd agreed. And he, and he, he got story. very upset. He was so defensive that he fell back on this. Well, the time's up our time's up. And I was like, actually, the time's not up. I'm looking at a clock. I've still got minutes left. He was so desperate to get out of that interview because I was challenging him on things he'd never really been challenged on His ties to a group called the MEK, a, a cultish Iranian opposition group that's paid him money. No one's really ever asked him about that, that before. Uh, His—you know Does he sleep at night because of all the people who died in Iraq? No one's really been that blunt with him over his own uh, record, bloodstained record in Iraq uh, as an architect of that horrible illegal war. So he wanted to get away from it. But why did he come on? I mean, he came. He, I think he was promoting his book at the time, yeah. One of the Great Things You Know. As you know, yeah. what am I doing right now? I'm on a book tour. Uh, when people have books out, that's always a great moment to get them. That's one way to get them. I have great producers who I name check at the end of the book who've done a fantastic job persuading people to come on my show and often had their ears chewed out afterwards. I had a producer, Al Jazeera English, who I, 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 actually, I specifically thank at the end of the book and say thank you because I know how many people After getting grilled by me, took it out on him and said, we weren't expecting this. And and I always say to people, I always tell my producers, be very clear about what the interview is, what the nature of the interview is, what Mm -hmm. the territory is. Send them clips. I don't do gotcha. I don't want people to say like, oh, I I pretended I was going to ask you this. And they're like, no, I want people to come on and have a good faith disagreement, but know that it's going to be challenging. It's not going to be softballs. Eric Prince, why did he come on that show? I don't know. If I was him, I would never have come on that show. I think it's partly ignorance. A lot of people just didn't bother to look me up. Uh, There's a a senior member of a foreign government. I won't name the government because they put a formal complaint into the Qatari government who owned Al Jazeera when I was at Al Jazeera English, who I interviewed. And before they came on air, they didn't know their mic was still up and they were talking to the assistant and they said, who is this guy again? And I just thought to myself... You really should have known. You really should have checked that out before you you turn up to that. I mean, I have a whole chapter in the book on preparation. You can't walk into an interview, either side of it, you the interviewer or you the interviewee, without having prepared, without having done your homework on people. And I talk a great deal about the importance of looking up people's biographies, their past statements, their quotes, their views. Um, You have to know what's going on. And I think a lot of people. Don't know what's going on, and to go back to kind of some of the people you mentioned, what do they have in common? Some of the people—they're right wingers who I've had big clashes with. I do think there's something about conservatives, and I say this in a complimentary way, not in a negative way, that they have thicker skins than a lot of liberals. I found mm. maybe it's because I don't know. You can you can we can theorize and speculate. Maybe it's because I don't know when they were in college they were surrounded by liberals. And they had to defend themselves. I don't know. But I feel like some conservatives have thicker skins and are willing to have an argument. And I often find the people who are most upset with me are people on my own side of the argument who don't expect me to ask them a tough question or liberals or leftists who maybe, maybe are a little less used to kind of the rough and tumble of a tough argument. So I I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm spitballing. I'm not sure. But I have found that a lot of these conservatives are more willing to have a row and leave without being completely upset. Some of them are, but some of them actually, I've, I interviewed General Flynn, I remember, and he left so happy. I mean, that was before he went full QAnon. <laughs> well, yeah,
1: I was going to say, that was a while ago.
2: <laughs> it was a while ago, but he, you know, even then he was saying some outrageous things about Muslims yeah. and defending Donald Trump. This but he right. left the interview happy, even though I, you know, it was a viral clip where I grilled him on all of Trump's lies and his Islamophobia. He left happy. And I just think sometimes maybe people just enjoy the argument like I do.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, this is a, a little, um, not quite to the point, but as you said, a, a lot of people who come on your show who end up more upset when they leave are liberals. And I think that's partially because they're expecting it to be completely friendly territory. And i it's not that it isn't, it's just that, you know, that doesn't mean you're never going to get challenged. Exactly. And I think that is one of the things that, that, uh, the, the landscape, how everything is so sil- siloed, is one of the yeah. things that puts us at a disadvantage. Because if you're never challenged, then you know yes. you're not going to get stronger.
2: And it's it goes to the heart of this book, and I talk about in the introduction that my father. Uh, I'm I'm from a Muslim family, as many people know. And my father, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, when people in certain northern cities of the UK, Muslims, were burning. Some Muslims decided to burn the satanic verses, Salman Rushdie's uh, very Islamophobic novel, let's be honest about what it is. But they burned it, and my dad bought it and put it on I remember we had bookshelves in our dining room, and he had bookshelf, and he had it on the bookshelf. And anyone who would come for dinner, Muslim friends of his, would see it, and they were like, what are you doing with this book? And his argument was, my dad's argument was, how can you condemn a book if you haven't read it? That's right. And that stuck with me. And then I come from a very disputatious household where we we're encouraged to question and, and challenge shocked. and argue. I'm, shocked. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you're shocked. Uh, wait till you If you ever meet the rest of the Hudson family, you'll see. But what I would say is that this goes to the heart of the book, which is you have to know both sides of the argument and you have to be able to challenge every argument, even the ones you agree with. I talk in the book a lot about... Um, You know, our biases, our cognitive biases, uh, confirmation bias, one of the worst things right now, which seems to be everywhere, especially in the age of the internet, is you take a position and then you just go Google a bunch of articles or stats that support your position. Uh, For example, the pandemic, COVID, everyone has, I'm anti-mask, I'm pro. I'll look up whatever I feel to back me up. No actual exploration of what the evidence says. We just try and find facts and figures that support our own position. It's horrible. It increases the siloization that you mentioned. My position has always been, look, I'm very much on the left. Everyone knows my politics. I don't hide them. I have an opinion show. But I read right-wing publications. I watch right-wing shows. I read right-wing authors, not because I enjoy it or because I agree with it, because I wanna know what the other side is saying. And I quote John Stuart Mill in the book, you cannot know your own side of the argument until you know the other side. And I apply that both to my approach to knowledge and research and debate. I also apply it to holding power to account. It doesn't matter if Jen Psaki is representing the Biden administration on my show, and I like Jen Psaki personally, the issue is, I need to explore whether this policy that Biden's putting forward is actually a good policy, even if on the face of it, it looks like a good policy. Let's talk through it. Let's talk through the criticisms of it.
1: Yeah. And that doesn't happen uh, nearly enough. So we're in this position Absolutely. now. We're about a third of the country and upwards yeah. of 80% of Republicans. They don't care about facts or logic. They just care if their side is winning, whatever that means. And it, it, it just puts us in this very uh, dangerous quandary. I, I would
2: I would jump in, Mary, just to say one thing. I half agree with you. I agree with okay. you on the Republicans being uh, dismissive of facts. Clearly, uh, we have a big chunk of this country that is completely not in a reality-based universe. To quote one former, famous Bush administration official, living you know in a land of QAnon conspiracies and everything's a lie and the media are all fake. But the point about partisanship, unfortunately, I think it's growing on both sides. I hate using the phrase both sides, but I see it. I see it. I, I'm on MSNBC. Sometimes I will take pot shots at the Biden administration on things I don't like. For example, mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of Joe Biden's immigration record. I'm not, I'm not happy right. with what he's done on Title 42 or the yep. recent changes on, on transit asylum claims. But sometimes you say that and immediately, especially on social media, you will get someone saying, well, D- Trump was worse. And it's like, I agree Trump was worse, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't hold your own president or your own party leader or the person you like to account as well. And that is something I feel very strongly about.
1: Yeah, I don't disagree with you at all. I, w- I was just um, picking on Republicans because- it- no, no,
2: I agree with you on the fact-based stuff. All I'm saying is yep. on, the, on the my team, the kind of sports team approach to politics, sadly, is across the spectrum.
1: Absolutely. And and I, I think that, I think, honestly, it's more of a problem on the right- yes. Um, because Definitely. of the ecosystem oh, they have it's a set cult up on the
2: right, that's the difference. It's a yeah, cult. exactly. It's not just a sports team,
1: but um, in terms of Democrats, yes, I, I had, uh, I had a policy up until the 2022 midterms that I was going to pull my punches when it came to the Biden administration because democracy is on the line, and we just need to make sure yeah. that the Democrats win because they are the only pro democracy party. But exactly. what I was hoping. Once we won in 2020, which we essentially did, that we were going to take the next year at least to start getting back to the days when we could be hard on our side and make our party better. Yeah. And you're right, that is not happening to the degree that it needs to. So. Uh,
2: if you say anything critical about Pete Buttigieg or Kamala Harris or certain other Democratic personalities on Twitter, a you know people will come and get very upset with you. And I agree with you. There's far too much homophobia against Buttigieg, far too much racism and misogyny against Harris. That doesn't mean that you should exempt them from legitimate criticisms about policy or or speeches or handling of issues. And, and that applies across the spectrum to the entire administration, whether it's Majorcas or anywhere else. Um, yep. And I think you know to come back to the theme of the book, the importance of debate. Is the Democratic Party going to have a debate about whether Joe Biden should be the nominee or is it going to be a feta complete? It looks like it's going to be a feta complete. Now, I say that not as someone who says Biden shouldn't be the nominee, I'm not saying he shouldn't, should or shouldn't. Mm -hmm. In fact, I said just the other day when he turned up in Kyiv, I'm someone who's underestimated Joe Biden again and again. He has constantly uh, impressed me in ways I didn't think he would. You know, he refused to sit down for an interview with Fox, which I thought was a brave move that Barack Obama, Bill Clinton would never have done and never did. Um, But that doesn't mean I think we should shut down debate. Mm -hmm. For example, his age. I do think that's a legitimate area of debate. I do think we should be able to have that discussion. Now, it doesn't mean, it, I'm not saying disqualify him for his age, but have the discussion. Have a good faith argument. Forget, but the problem we have is every time we try and have a good faith argument, the bad faith folks wreck it for the rest of us. So anytime you do want to talk about I don't know, Biden or Harris or Buttigieg, Fox say something crazy and everyone's like, oh, you're agreeing with Fox? No, obviously what Fox is saying is crazy. Let's yeah. talk about the legitimate criticisms. There's illegitimate criticisms and there's legitimate criticisms. And we've become so tribal and intense online that sometimes we we are unable to unpack the legitimate from the illegitimate.
1: And that gets me to ad hominem attacks. I, I found this section really fascinating, um, which is why Thank I you. keep going back to it, because You know, I think like most people, I think I'm against, in principle, ad hominem attacks because I always assume to be that they are attacks on qualities that are imminent to the person, qualities that that person has no control over, appearance, race, sexual orientation, gender, religion. But as you make very clear, that is not necessarily what's going on. And it could be uh, attacks on qualities that are, I guess, earned. Reputation, honesty, yep. credibility, criminality, or the opposites. So, I think sometimes there is um, for the Democrats, the Republicans do engage in the first kind a lot, especially Donald. What's called the
2: abusive ad hominem? It's a specific yes. type of ad hominem. Which, as I point out in the book, this is uh, a chapter in the book in in the first third on the, on the, on the on the on the fundamentals because I do believe it is fundamental because I tie it back to Aristotle's three emotion three appeals I mentioned already. Uh, pathos the emotional appeal logos the rational appeal but then there's the appeal to person the appeal to credibility and that is called ethos and ad hominem attacks are literally mean to the person and we're told in high school debate in university debate don't attack the person play the ball not the man and I think that's both unrealistic and impractical it just doesn't happen in everyday life and also it's unnecessary sometimes it is necessary uh, to play the man. And the way I explain it, and I start the chapter by talking about Donald Trump, perhaps the most famous ad-hom practitioner on planet Earth right now, whose entire debate and political strategy is all about coming up with nicknames. Uh, he's busy trying out different ones for Ron, De- Ron De sanctimonious right now. Meatballs and he's is the latest through-
1: one for Ron DeSantis. I love that. Meatballs his, his- DeSantis or Meatballs Ron. Meet right? more. The problem with the problem with Trump and people
2: we don't like to admit this is as horrible as some of his nicknames are. they kind of they 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 stick like you know when when we're in the playground nobody wants to agree with the bully but if the bully uh, he's a bully he comes up with nicknames he's quite good at coming up with horrible and often racist nicknames yep. um, and he'll keep doing it. And I make the point in the book that it actually worked for him. We might not want to admit it, but he did undermine Jeb Bush with the low energy stuff that did come to define Jeb Bush in 2016. Now it doesn't always work. His attacks on sleepy Joe Biden didn't work in 2020. But the point is that, and I go back again to Cicero and I talk about Cicero being famous uh, for his invective, for his personal attacks. This goes back to ancient Rome. Uh, he was actually, you know, he called, he made fun of people's appearances. Now I'm not saying make fun of people's appearances. I'm not saying do gratuitous name calling and insults and, you know, swear words. What I'm saying is there are three types of ad hominem that are totally relevant. One is the abusive ad hominem. And when I say abusive, ad I don't mean name calling. I mean, for example, if you say someone has, is a liar, right? big word in the media, people don't like using the L word. People say, well, that's not relevant to the argument. The the argument is about the premises. Do the conclusions follow the premises? Not true. If somebody has a history of lying and their argument is based on something that they are relaying or telling to you, you have every right to tell your audience, well, that person is an unreliable narrator. Lawyers do this in court all the time with witnesses to establish their credibility. So that's one point. The other point I make is there's a circumstantial ad hominem. If somebody's circumstances are leading them to push an argument, if I am saying to you, um, that, you know what, um, I'm a scientist and I'm telling you that smoking's fine. And I point out to you, but you're funded by the tobacco company? That's legitimate. People should yeah. know that. We should be aware of people's own circumstances. Is there a financial self-interest or motivation to making a case? And the third point I make is the tu quoque ad hominem, which is the hypocrisy, the you too. Why aren't you doing it if you're telling me to do it? And people say, people say for example, for Republican congressman is anti-abortion, but he paid his mistress, and there are many cases of this, he paid his mistress to have an abortion in secret. Now, under the strict rules of debate, that's not relevant to the argument over abortion, because whether he paid his mistress or not doesn't affect, does the fetus have a right to life? Does the fetus feel pain? What is the age of violence? In strict rhetorical, that's all you should be arguing about if you're having a debate about abortion. I'm saying, no, if the person has also paid their mistress to have an abortion, Again, it is legitimate to point that out. It's yeah. legitimate to say, "Why are you not following the same principles that you are telling the rest of us to follow?" Perhaps there's something wrong with those principles, right? That is a legitimate form of attack, and I've done this on my show as an interviewer many a time. Like I give the, and especially ad hominem means to the person, but a pro hominem argument means if I if I use my person to make the argument, we know people do that all the time. We know that military people come on TV and say we should support. This country in this war because of this argument. I, as a general, I'm telling you, mm-hmm. we know that doctors during COVID came on and said, "Do this or don't do that," based on my medical qualifications. People yes. do that once you've brought your qualifications or your credibility or expertise into the argument it's fair game. And yeah. I did a famous interview with Dr. Monica Gandhi, who is a doctor out of San Francisco, who most public health experts can't stand because she spent the entire pandemic minimizing the pandemic to the point where she giggled about variant schmerians shortly before Delta came out and started killing thousands of Americans. And when I had her on my show, she got very upset both during and after the interview, because I spent a great deal of time just literally listing out all the predictions she made that were wrong. Now, you might say, well, that's not relevant to the argument over COVID, COVID should be looked at in a lab. I'm saying, no, this person is treated by the media as some oracle on COVID. I think it's relevant for the viewers to know that everything previously she said turned out to be wrong. So oh, I'm gonna grab my air So um, I do believe that bringing up a person's qualifications, expertise, track record, honesty is completely relevant. And, we sh- and Democrats for far too long have said, Oh, they go high. They go low. We go high. Mm, uh, no.
1: no, we need to uh, get it, get in the mud and with our brass knuckles on. Um, so because we do live in this time where people with enormous amounts of influence are maintaining and accruing power because yes. they are so willing to yes. break the rules of debate and public speaking that you lay out so brilliantly. And I guess I have a couple of questions. Um, one is what do we do about that? And two, um, in, the, in the face of, one of the things I, I find absolutely fascinating is that you know, we, we have brilliant orders like Martin Luther King and uh, Barack Obama, and then we end up with Donald Trump. Um, and then there's President Biden, not known for being a great public speaker, who actually has given two or three of the most effective political speeches I've ever heard. So I'm, I'm curious to know, first of all, what do we do about this very serious problem when people like Donald Trump with their galloping gish can go in a presidential debate and Unimpeded for two minutes, just lie, lie. I think you said he lied once every nine seconds. I can't, isn't there some way we can, you know, stop this? You know,
2: that's a great question. So I, I, let me do with the first question. What do we do so, about these people? So in the book, I try and lay out where we can push back. In my chapter on the Gish Gallop, I point out some of the techniques we can use. One of the main ones being call it out. Like, yeah. You know, uh, you have to be able to call things out, make people aware of what is going on. Um, the, For far too long, we've normalized a lot of this rhetoric. We've normalized a lot of this bullshitting. We've normalized a lot of what's propaganda but passes for political messaging. I think you've got to call it out. And I mentioned earlier the L word. We don't use the word lie enough. I would like to see more anchors, interviewers say, that's a lie, right? That's not just a, uh, you know, you've not just inaccurate or incorrect. It's a lie. You know it's not true, right? So that's one thing. I think you've got to call it out. Call out the lies. Call out the racism. Call out the BS. And make people aware of what is going on because this is part of, and you and I have talked about this before, this is part of the rise of fascism and authoritarianism is this assault on the truth. Remember, the fascist doesn't want you to believe the right over the left. The fascist wants you to believe no one. The Fascist wants con- mass confusion so that the strong leader can then step in. So that is, it's a deliberate tactic of theirs to destroy the credibility of the media, of democratic institutions. We need to push back and call it out. The other point I would say is we also need to know when to walk away. One chapter I regret not writing in this book, and if everyone buys this book and I write a sequel, I will make this chapter, which is when do you walk away from an argument? It's a really mm-hmm. important discussion to have because some arguments are not worth having. I talked earlier about bad faith actors. I wouldn't have Marjorie Taylor Greene on my show. I've said this before. Like if Marjorie Taylor Greene rang out my president, I want to come on the show. We'll have a debate, you and me and Mary... It'll go viral. It would go viral. It'd be great for my career and profile to interview Marjorie Taylor Green. I'd probably rhetorically uh, uh, beat her up or, you know, mm-hmm. challenge her. Um, but would I do it? No. I'd say no thanks because what would be the point of that exchange? Okay. As you say, they don't follow the rules. And just by getting the platform, they get the win to push their nonsense out there is no way you could do it in a way that would be respectful to an audience that wasn't just a shouting match or someone who got up and walked out. Um, You know, I'm trying to think as I speak to you, like, is there a way I could do it? If it was pre-taped, if we start to fact check in the middle, like I wouldn't want to give someone like that just a platform to talk nonsense and assume that I can cut her off at the right time to fact check the viewer in time. I mean, I think it's dangerous to give certain people uh, live platforms. So that's one thing. When do you walk away from it? And, I, and, and I've said for a long time, Democrats shouldn't be going on Fox and legitimizing I, Fox. I think that's a I mistake. Agree. Treat Fox like the propaganda arm of the Republican Party that it is, uh, like the purveyor of white nationalist tropes that it is. Um, so that's one point. That's, that's how you try and push back. But there's no easy answer. I, I won't pretend to have a silver bullet here. It's a, we're in a very dark time. In terms of your wider point about the speakers and the people who get power, I mean, let's go back to Donald, He's not a bad speaker. I mean, he's a crazy speaker. He says nonsense. He rants and rambles in hilarious ways. But in terms of achieving what he wants to achieve with the audience who he wants to target, he's done fine. There's a reason he's a cult leader, despite having no qualifications to be a cult leader. There's a reason he managed to get tens of millions of people to vote for him two elections running. And that is because he knows how to be a demagogue. And we know going back to the time of Adolf Hitler, We know how demagogues speak in public. We know how they connect with the masses. And it is fascist rhetoric. Jason Stanley, I urge everyone to read Jason Stanley's book on fascism. He makes it very clear the importance of communications and messaging to the fascist movement, uh, the actual, the buttons that they push, uh, the way that they rouse emotions. Trump is very good at that. Uh, He, you know, without having read Aristotle, he's very good at pathos. He's very good at getting people angry. He's very good at getting people worked up. I go back to 2016 and I think, Donald Trump had a very effective communication style, which was build a wall, ban Muslims. Like you remember that. What does Donald yeah, and Trump for? Build lock a her push. up, ban Muslims, lock her up. Like very, very clever, uh, a brief statements that everyone remembers and that appeal to your heart, not your head. Hillary Clinton had a seventeen-point plan for childcare and how she would pay for it.
0: Oh, she's Great a Democrat. I
2: wish she had been president to implement it, but yeah. that wasn't what was memorable. And I think about, you know, we've had what six presidential elections in the 21st century and you have had um democrats win three of those elections two from obama one from biden look at the three people who lost john kerry al gore hillary clinton what did they all have in common they wanted to bore you to death (laughs) with statistics facts figures i mean reality good people smart people would have been good presidents but that's the reality. I don't think that's a coincidence personally. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that Hillary Clinton goes and wins New Hampshire against Barack Obama, against the odds after he's won Iowa, after he has, Miranda. how does she pull off New Hampshire? She cries, she gets emotional. She lets people see her as a real person. She connects with her audience in an authentic way. Things that I say in the chapter one of the book is absolutely crucial to winning over audience. She wins New Hampshire, Joe Biden. Yeah, he's not MLK but he's authentic. When he speaks, he doesn't sound like he's speaking off a teleprompter. He doesn't sound like he's reciting talking points from an aide. And you saw that State of the Union. He goes off script and picks a fight with Republicans in the crowd. Wins. Wins.
1: Yeah, uh, Mary, I could keep you here for. I found this fascinating. I again, there's so many real world implications for this. Um, but I, I really appreciate uh, you're spending so much time with me. I know you're a very, very busy man, and you're going to be much, much busier in the coming weeks. It's uh, a,
2: it's an absolute pleasure, Mary. Thanks for having me. As I said, I've enjoyed reading your books and chatting to you about your book. So it's an absolute honor and privilege to be on your show talking about my book.
1: Oh, thank you. And I just want to tell everybody who's watching, if you think this doesn't apply to you, um, try going to a Thanksgiving dinner with a bunch of people from the other party, not knowing how to do rhetorical judo. It will make your lives better in so many ways, and not just that. That's just m- one of my favorites. So, I mean, imagine if
2: you imagine if you remember the Trump family and had to go to Thanksgiving. I,
1: I can't honestly. I'd have to really stretch my mind. Actually, I just kept my mouth shut, but um, it served me well for a few decades. So. But you know, it's much more interesting if you could actually argue. You be a listener
2: to chapter four or five I can't what
1: it. chapter of my own book. It is be a good listener. That's right. That's exactly right. And I was. So there you go. Worked out for me. Anyway, Mehdi Hassan, uh, new author of Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading and Public Speaking. It is a phenomenal read. Everybody go buy it right now. Mehdi, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it.
2: Had a great time. Thank you.
1: Bye. Well, that was incredible. Um, Mehdi is so smart and he gets his points across so incredibly well uh, on his show, of course, but also in this book, which again, I highly recommend. Thank all of you for being here tonight. Um, again, the book is Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. and. Listen, you, you may not think it applies to you or is is, is worth reading. I uh, strongly encourage you to rethink that. Um, it's it's a great read. And again, like I said at the beginning of the show, it's different. <laughs> you know, it's just like a nice break, even though it does have real-world implications. It's entertaining. It's, uh, I learned a lot um, about the history of of rhetoric, which sounds boring. It's not. Actually, it doesn't sound boring to me. might sound boring to you. It's not. It's fascinating stuff. Um, So that does it for us tonight. Thank you so much for being here. Um, We will be back tomorrow at 12 noon, 9 a.m. Eastern. Sorry, 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific for the House of Horrors and of course back next tuesday with the nerd avengers that's also at 12 p.m eastern 9 a.m pacific and next thursday our usual time uh, at uh, 7 p.m eastern 4 p.m pacific that's all at youtube.com slash politicon uh, where you will also find short videos dropping every saturday and more every wednesday more or less give or take uh so that's youtube.com slash politicon. And while you're there, you can like the episode, you can comment on the episode if you didn't get to watch it in real time. You can click on that bell to make sure that you're alerted every time a new video drops. And of course you can listen to the show in podcast form on Apple, everywhere you get your podcast, except of course, Spotify and a five-star review really helps us and it helps other people find the show as well so thank you as always for being here for supporting us uh we so so appreciate it we'll see you back here tomorrow at noon uh in the meantime please stay safe and be kind
0: Go to Shopify.com slash Audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Audioboom. Let's talk about MediCal. You have a choice and Melina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to
1: manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmelinaca.com. Let's talk today.